0: More Americans were on the road for Independence Day 2023 than at any time in history. And despite all the hype you've been hearing about an exponential growth of electric vehicles, and 99% of those cars had internal combustion engines. The point? Well, a dozen U.S. states from California to New York, have joined dozens of countries with plans to ban the sale of new cars with an internal combustion engine. Many of those prohibitions will take place within a decade. The reason requires no explanation, as it's been said so often in so many places by so many politicians, pundits, and proponents of the so-called energy transition away from hydrocarbons. But for the record, banning internal combustion engines, enforcing, mandating, and subsidizing everyone into electric vehicles, EVs, is all in service of the claim that it will lead to radical reductions in carbon dioxide emissions, CO2 emissions. And the collateral claim, of course, that such a transition is inevitable, that EVs are now, or, or will soon be, cheaper and better than conventional cars. It is, we're told, the equivalent of the migration away from the horse and buggy over a century ago. But is all that true? Is banning internal combustion engines a good idea? Is it even feasible? And would it, this is the key, and would it radically reduce CO2 emissions in the real, not the PowerPoint world? In order to fully answer these questions, I'm gonna devote this and several more episodes to a deep dive into EV land. I'll tell you the bottom line up front, of course, then we'll explore the underlying facts well-known and well-documented facts, by the way. Facts that I, in fact, document in my latest paper titled Electric Vehicles for Everyone, The Impossible Dream. And I'll confess using the impossible dream from uh, Man of La Mancha and tilting at windmills and all that good stuff. <laughs> anyway, the, the facts that I'm going to outline for you support what seems like you know bold claims, uh, but let me be clear, these are not political claims. There are, of course... Political dimensions to all this, which which I'll talk about, but we want to we want to focus on the underlying energy physics and the underlying economic and engineering realities uh, to understand the claims about EVs and the uh, challenges and mandates to turn America and all the Western world, all the world in the International Energy Agency's uh, mind, all the world into EV driving uh, citizens. Let's start with the obvious fact that it, it is true that EVs are practical now, finally, and they're appealing for many drivers. Without subsidies, mandates, there' still be millions more of them purchased by a lot of consumers, although mostly be wealthy ones, like it's the case so far. But what's less true, and it's occluded by political debate and aspirations and hyperbole, are the facts that reveal the fatal flaws in the central pillars in the entire architecture. Of the motives and policies for engine prohibitions and EV mandates and subsidies. I'll explore more detail, but let me let me give you the three bottom lines. First, this is key. No one knows how much, if at all, CO2 emissions will decline as EV uses rise, as EV use rises. I mean, every claim that's being made for EVs reducing CO2 emissions is fundamentally a rough estimate essentially an outright guess in many cases, based on averages, approximations, or aspirations. The variables and the uncertainties and emissions that occur from the energy intensive mining and processing of minerals needed to make EV batteries, that's the big wild card of the emissions calculus. Those emissions dramatically offset any reductions that come from avoiding burning gasoline in the first place. And as the demand for battery minerals explodes, these net reductions, you know, subtracting the two equations, the emissions from making the EV to the emissions, from avoiding burning gasoline, those reductions uh, decrease and may evaporate. Second, no one knows when or if EVs will reach economic parity with the cars that we drive today, internal combustion engine cars. The EVs price is dominated by the cost of the critical materials that are needed to build the batteries. That means that the future price of EVs are dependent on guessing the future price of the minerals produced by mining and minerals industries, which are mainly in foreign countries. Facts show that most drivers, for most drivers, there also is no visibility on when or if EVs will reach parity in fueling convenience, if you like, regardless of subsidies. And third, the final point we'll ultimately cover is that no one is. Uh, They're really serious about the needs, the means, and the prospects for building a domestic supply chain of the critical minerals needed to fabricate an all-EV future, to build all the batteries. The EV supply chain is a complete inversion of the energy, geopolitical, and economic dependencies of the United States. For Europe, it's a shift in dependencies from countries like the United States, to countries like, well, mainly China, and lots of other far less friendly trading partners. So the bottom line then is that ultimately, you might imagine if implemented, bans on conventional vehicles with internal combustion engines will lead to draconian impediments to the affordable and convenient driving for most people, for the vast majority of people. And if all the spending and subsidies now planned to try to make that happen, if that actually happens, it would be one of the biggest, and maybe the biggest misallocations of capital ever in the world's $4 trillion automobile industry. So with that uh, sort of cheery summation of the bottom lines, let's dig in. And we have to begin with, uh, not with EVs per se, but with the reality of something that pretty really no one doubts. Uh, even if there are people that lament it, it's a this, it's the centrality of the automobile to modern society. I like the uh, line um, from a book written by the uh, recently deceased MIT historian, you know Leo Marks, a, a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, and he and I'm doing a direct quote uh, from a recent, uh, relatively recent piece he wrote about vehicles because we've been arguing about the impact of the automobile on society and resources and dependencies for a very long time. And he wrote. To speak as people often do of the impact of the automobile upon society makes little more sense by now than to speak of the impact of the bone structure on the human body." End quote. Now, put differently, the automobile having access to a car and the infrastructures that are associated with it are integral to a modern society. In fact, for the entirety of the century, of the modern automobile age, policymakers have encouraged, facilitated, uh, bragged about the production and use of cars. And of course they regulate and tax them too, but fundamentally countries have for a century encouraged car ownership and encouraged car manufacturing and encouraged car use. So it's kind of an unprecedented step to see uh, emerge and get formalized the idea that policymakers would uh, put in place the ban, a ban, an outright ban on the sale of the type of vehicle that 99% of people use—that is, vehicles powered by an internal combustion engine. I mean, government policies to mandate, both directly and indirectly, electric vehicles are explicitly, if not implicitly, intended to ban or prevent people uh, from using the cars that everybody drives today. In fact. In the sort of the pantheon of bans, if you like, of governments, especially the U.S. government, I think it's probably it's probably the case. And if some of you know an example which which is different, uh, I think it's probably the case to say that there's never been well rephrase this. There's only been two times in American history that policymakers and governments have banned the use of a product or service that is so so widely uh, uh, used or consumed by American citizens. These are, the, perhaps it's already in your head, the two obvious things. The 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, 1920, which prohibited the consumption of alcohol, uh, it's a substance that has been cons- produced and consumed by humans since before written history. And then there's the 1974 uh, ban on driving faster than 55 miles per hour on highways, uh, which was, which is a, a practice of uh, that uh, on highways that the vast majority of Americans engaged in for most of modern automobile history. Both those bans failed to achieve their goals. Both those bans were widely flouted. And in fact, in, in, especially in the first case, they uh, engendered uh, pretty serious unintended consequences, not the least of which was criminal behavior. So the idea of banning the internal combustion engine or the de facto equivalent through uh, environmental regulations, as I as I said at the outset, this emerges from the idea, the thesis that an energy transition eliminating hydrocarbons is both necessary and inevitable. So this ban is not much different than other bans imagined of the energy transition thesis, except it has it has a, an important uh, feature that's that's new or more broadly impactful. Uh, For example, uh, as as you know, uh, governments are either directly or indirectly banning the combustion of coal, if they can, and and to make electricity, all right? Uh, But the electricity, that kind of electricity production mandate or ban, the main effect of that is that, just to simplify, it merely increases the cost of the product consumers use. That's what its primary effect is, uh, which is a big effect, but the product is still electricity. The kilowatt hour is still a kilowatt hour. It's just a more expensive uh, kilowatt hour to make it just as convenient. You can do that, but you have to again spend yet more money, but you can deliver the same kilowatt hour by banning certain classes of electricity production. It just, in air quotes, radically increases the cost of that kilowatt hour. But with internal combustion engines, it doesn't just increase the cost of transportation; it profoundly changes the nature of transportation, which I'll get to. So there's a difference, a distinction with a profound difference. Before we get to these distinctions, let me let me spend a few minutes, um, sort of calibrating where we are in the electric vehicle "quote unquote" revolution, because it is it is a revolutionary model of vehicle. Let's be clear: what an electric vehicle is. Is a new model, a new class of car. It's not like, it's a, it's more than the transition from stick shift to automatic transition transmission, and it's more than the transition from uh, you know uh, conventional brakes to uh, anti-lock brakes. It's clearly more than that. It's it's like a hypertrophied version of going from. Uh, you know, clunky, inefficient uh, four-cylinder engines to, you know, quiet, more powerful V sixes or V eight engines. It's a, it's a significant model option, or maybe put more different. It's more like um, the creation of a new, new social, psychological class of model of car. We know that consumers like different models of cars because. You know famous line from Henry Ford when he made the Model T that everybody gets the same car and it can have any choice of color as long as it's black. That era of only one kind of car ended rather quickly because there are today in the world hundreds and hundreds of different models of cars. So as you just stated it's obvious. Everybody knows that. The electric vehicle is essentially another model of car, but it, it is the revolutionary model. There have been a few revolutionary models of cars in the history of the automobile industry. And enthusiasts are, are right to credit Elon Musk with launching today's you know excitement about EVs. I mean, until the, the introduction in 2012 of the Tesla S, and I'm being clear here, not about his sports sedan before that, but the revolutionary vehicle that was introduced by uh, Elon Musk in 2012 was the Tesla S sedan, which kind of ironically was exactly 100 years after Studebaker, closed its electric vehicle production line. And Studebaker a century ago was was the uh, world's biggest EV producer. So no company in a century has successfully introduced a battery only option for a car. And and in a century, nor has any new car company succeeded in taking so much market share from the legacy competition. Like last year, Tesla was the number one luxury brand in the United States. It accounted for nearly one fifth of all sales in that the uh, most profitable and coveted category of automobiles. That's an impressive feat. Elon Musk uh, accomplished that. Subsidies can't explain it away. Of course, the luxury car category only accounts for about 10% at most of overall car sales. Still, that would explain why uh, every luxury automaker in the world has scrambled to produce an option to compete with the Tesla Sedan. We even see... uh, non automotive tech companies trying to compete and get into that business i mean the rumor has been around for a long time got resurfaced again the last few months that apple will still will one of day soon unveil their own ev i mean for apple they've never manufactured a car but they don't they don't directly manufacture the smartphones either as everybody knows they're they're assembled/manufactured by foxconn in china primarily uh, if apple wanted to make an EV they could they could do that they could take 10% of the cash they have on their on their balance sheet and just with just that 10% they can buy they can buy the entire company Hyundai and Hyundai makes good cars so then <laughs> Hyundai would become become the wholly owned subsidiary of Apple producing their electric car. Anyway there there are dozens of electric car models now available not just Teslas even though Tesla outside of China is still the number one The number one brand, in fact, in the United States, Tesla's accounted for, I think, last year, uh, two thirds of all EVs purchased. So it's still, in America, a Tesla story. The the arrival of useful EVs didn't didn't happen because of government mandates or incentives. Uh, That doesn't explain it. It was made possible by the maturation of two enabling technologies that that I've talked about before in previous podcasts. These were both technologies that are invented in the mid-1970s. One of them, it's the now famous lithium battery chemistry, of course, and that was first identified by you know Stanley Whittingham, who was working, ironically, at that time at Exxon's New Jersey research labs. As most of you know, Whitting, Whittingham was one of the three to later receive the 2019 Nobel in Chemistry for that discovery invention. But the other, less well known, but equally pivotal, pivotal and contemporaneous invention came from a a guy that most people never heard of, Jay Balaga. Uh, He worked at GE's R&D center uh, in the mid seventies and he invented something called the IGBT that stands for uh, for the cognoscenti among us, the integrated gate bipolar transistor, (laughs) IGBT. This is a new class of silicon transistor, a switch, silicon switch, Uh, instead of switching logic ones and zeros, which is what the tiny transistors are in silicon, Uh, do, this class of silicon transistor is intended to manage high power electricity flows. It's the IGBT that made possible compact, efficient digital control of electric power. And that's critical for electric vehicle drivetrains. So Belaga received the uh, 2015 Global Energy Prize for one of the most important innovations for the control and distribution of electrical energy. Appropriately enough, the two together, a much more efficient way to store electricity and a much more efficient and effective way for managing electric flows in small places, cars, that combination is what made possible what Elon Musk did. Incidentally, it's the same pattern as what made possible what Steve Jobs did. Steve Jobs did not invent the uh, uh, chip scale radio that made smartphones possible. He did not invent the lithium battery, which made smartphones possible, nor did he invent the uh, small LCD screen uh, that made smartphones possible. It is beyond obvious that you couldn't make a smartphone with a cathode ray tube. Anyway, it wouldn't be very smart. So back to EVs. So useful EVs are undeniably, I mean, there's no question, a significant addition to the Pantheon of options for consumers, but the rhetoric and hyperbole around the inevitability of EVs for everyone, that emerges from kind of a set of myths and misperceptions about the underlying technologies. I mean, the International Energy Agency, the IEA is, and I'm picking on them because they're not, well, because they deserve to be picked on <laughs> because they are they are ostensibly the, the uh, repository and purveyors of basic information, but they've migrated into becoming uh, touts for the energy transition. In any case, they do very good work. Uh, I quote their work all the time because their analysts do excellent work. The PR, a uh, flackery of it does, uh, well, PR flackery. In their, in their uh, 2023 Global EV Outlook, new paper out uh, within the last month, uh, they tout that, and they use this line that you see everywhere, EV markets are seeing exponential growth as sales exceeded 10 million EVs in 2022. That's from their report. This is kind of a finger on the scale hyperbole surrounding EVs. And that's sort of where the misperceptions of the hyperbole begin. First of all, the IEA includes in their 10 million sold globally. Keep in mind, the world citizens today buy about 80 million cars a year. So 10 million last year were, according to IEA EVs. Well, that's not really true. Uh, IEA includes hybrids in that accounting, and they state that. Uh, And about a third of those sales were hybrids. The hybrid means it has electric motor and an internal combustion engine, the very internal combustion engines that policymakers and the IEA uh, propose to make it impossible to buy in the future. So hybrids shouldn't be counted in the taxonomy of the exponential growth of EVs, self-evidently. But still, 7 million uh, non-hybrid EVs were uh, sold or purchased by consumers globally last year. And that's a really big increase over where the world was a decade ago, where Tesla introduced the Model S First year of the Model S, it was about 3,000 sold. So uh, that's a lot of EVs in the, uh, in the world compared to where we were before. And again, in the United States uh, in 2022, about 10% of all uh, cars were EVs, two thirds of which, uh, no, sorry. I'm, I'm, it was fewer than 10% of all cars. 10% of the world's EV sales uh, were in the United States. And in the United States, two-thirds of all EV purchases were Teslas. So Tesla dominated. Number two, by the way, was the Ford Mustang Mach-E in a very far distant uh, number two position. They sold one-tenth as many, roughly, as as Elon Musk sold. So a lot of catch-up to do. But this is, the language matters, words matter. Is this exponential growth? Well, yes. Uh, you can get exponential growth in the sense of uh, if you have a trivially small number and then you get a, a much uh get a larger number, you can have exponential growth off a very small basis. But in the in the universe of new models of cars, is the introduction of the electric vehicle experiencing exponential growth compared to other new models of cars that have been introduced in modern history? Well, the answer is no. And to prove that, let's just go over a couple of very brief uh facts relating to the modern history of new models of cars in American history. So six years after the introduction of Tesla, uh, the 200,000, they sold 200,000 cars in the first six years uh, for introduction. Pretty good. Uh, Two years after Ford introduced its Mustang Mach-E, they they reached 150,000 cars. Not bad, Uh, a little faster than uh, the Tesla. They sort of got the piggyback Tesla, two years to 150,000. Chrysler in 1983, when they invented the class of car called the minivan, which is pretty well timed for the demographic shift of baby boomers, but they sold more than 200,000 in the first year, well under a year. Pretty fast growth. Uh, but the consumer adoption record, to give you a sense of exponential growth, adoption, and enthusiasm from new cars, that belongs to the, uh, the famous 1964 Mustang. That was a category creating car. It was well timed to meet the uh, so the demographic shift of that era, uh, the introduction of an affordable sports car, again for um, for the uh, the boomer generation entering entering the pre-child era, if you like. Anyway, Ford sold one million Mustangs within eighteen months. That's pretty impressive. It took Tesla twenty sorry ninety two months ninety two months to reach a million cars. So, n- million cars is a lot. Sure, 92 months versus 18 months, the exponential growth record belongs to Ford and the first Mustang. So let's uh, let's turn to talking about EV specifically and cars more generally and, uh, and answer the questions as we will going through this series of episodes about whether or not EVs will lead to profound reductions in CO2 emissions. As I told you at the outset, the answer, you know, spoiler alert, no. Uh, whether EVs will soon be cheaper and operational equal to internal combustion engine cars. Again, spoiler alert, the answer is no, and we don't know when that'll happen. Doesn't mean it can't ever happen, but we don't know when. Uh, I have some guesses, which we'll get to later. And of course, underpinning all this is the question of whether or not cars in general, never mind uh, EVs, are essential as they used to be uh, in a modern society. Because one of the... Uh, concurrent themes that's being pushed in energy transition circles is the overt uh, claim uh, that future generations, especially uh, uh, young millennials and rising uh, rising Gen Zs, uh, they just aren't going to drive as much. They don't need cars. They'll be happy to share cars. They're going to bicycle. They're going to walk. They're going to ride share uh, with Uber and Lyft. Uh, so the car is less important. So banning certain classes of cars will not meet with much resistance. So before we turn to the EV tropes, it's really important to get uh, a baseline on whether or not it's true that cars are less important because the uh, the chattering classes that write about this stuff are been, have been uh, saying that for, uh, well, basically the last decade I've been tracking this. So what is the current state and future of what's now called personal mobility? Um, Actually, it's a pretty good word. I'm kind of implicitly making fun of it. but uh, it's actually it's actually the right the right way to construct this idea because a car that's useful for personal mobility should have a lot of features about uh, the convenience for you. Uh, a car that is that you could use occasionally or that's really expensive or that you could only share uh, from a personal freedom of mobility perspective, clearly a lot less useful. So the the, the phrase the phrase is actually pretty interesting. The engine prohibitionists, those who want to ban internal combustion engines, they're essentially uh, intellectual fellow travelers with the people that are claiming we've reached peak car. The argument that millennials uh, and Gen Zs don't share the affection for cars that uh, boomers do. Well, we do know that during the Great Recession that started in 2007 and rolled out for about a decade, uh, during, that, during that period, we saw lots of headlines, you know, the Western world has turned its back on the car culture. I mean, Goldman Sachs was saying that, and, and I'll quote, millennials have been reluctant to buy items such as cars and are turning to a new set of services that provide access to products without the burdens of ownership, giving rise to what's being called a sharing economy, end quote. Remember all the hype about the sharing economy? There's a lot of sharing going on. I get it. Uh, that's why Uber was successful it's not, it, it, calling Uber a sharing economy uh, is like calling taxes, taxis a sharing economy. The percentage of Uber rides that are shared as opposed to taking solo is trivial. People take Uber because it's a convenient form of taxi service. But during the uh, Great Recession, and then of course, especially during the COVID-inspired lockdowns, uh, the combination of the trope of a sharing economy and a lack of affection for for cars, uh, or a lack of love of the automobile age, and of course the rise of remote work, uh, really accelerated the hype around the end of driving. But what do the data tell us? Well, data tell us that the belief that people in general, or that the rising generation, uh, the first internet internet era generation, that they won't that they won't want cars, the data show that that's just not true. In fact, there's a very recent MIT analysis. Uh, both done uh, uh, with surveys as well as looking at the data, uh, comparing boomers and millennials. That analysis, and this is a this is the bottom line of the MIT analysis. Quote: There's little difference in preferences for vehicle ownership between boomers and millennials. And and again, quoting in contrast to anecdotes, we find higher usage in terms of vehicle miles traveled with millennials compared to boomers. End quote. <laughs> So much for that trope. Uh, and how about the share of cars for the yet to come of age Gen Zs? Well, the share of cars owned by the rising generation of Gen Zs has uh, increased fivefold in the past five years. Or put differently, as Gen Zs come of age, they can buy cars, they're buying cars. Uh, what the data show is that when the 2008 recession finally ended, the millennials found work, they bought cars, I and mean, they had money. And they took the roads just like everybody else. In fact, Federal Reserve data that tracks the you know, NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the tracking of uh, road miles, uh, the road, road driving uh, driving went down during the great lockdown. So and this is a, no surprise. And it's come booming back. And as I said at the opening, it came booming back such that uh, the holiday long weekend of Independence Day 2023 saw record number. Uh, of people driving, in fact, greater than the last peak, which was unsurprisingly 2019, the year before the world got shut down. So let's also turn in terms of car use to the car. So the car use uh, the peak car theory to interject a summary point. This is anchored in three things. One is that um, Gen Z's, millennials and Gen Z's won't drive. They won't want to own cars, Uh, not true. The second thesis is that, uh, which I'm gonna to turn to here, is that there's uh, the remote work, work from home, work from anywhere uh, thesis means fewer cars will be needed, so we can ban cars of many kinds. And of course, the third thesis is that the the world is urbanizing, and in an, in an urbanizing environment, you need fewer cars to drive fewer miles. So first one we dealt with uh, the, the trope that millennials and Gen Zs want to own cars is not showing up in the data. The second claim is that work from anywhere uh, will reduce car use. Well, you should know at the outset that the record, the historic record number of people taking uh, the road uh, in Independence Day 2023 makes a lie of that. But more broadly, uh, what we're seeing is a change in the pattern of driving. What the data show is that remote working, telecommuting, work from anywhere is not reducing road use, it's shifting the patterns of road use. you know, it's very interesting. A British sociologist, uh, 20 years ago, a guy named John Urry, he wrote uh, he wrote about the uh, the effect of communications on travel. That that time telephony and then the internet was already in play. What would the internet do to travel? And what he what he concluded uh, presciently, uh, it was that travel would change, but it wouldn't reduce. That people would shift what they use their cars for and their time for. Less commuting, more other stuff, like if you get wealthy, vacation, entertainment, also visiting people, you know, driving to the gym, whatever. What the records show is that that's exactly what's happened, uh, both over the last two decades, but also in particular uh, with the rise of telecommuting. So, telecommuting is not eliminating the use of cars, it's just shifting uh, when cars are used and what they're used for. Uh, in general, by the way, I've written about this, talked about before. Uh, The share of uh, driving miles devoted to commuting uh, has declined dramatically over the last 40 to 50 years. It used to be well over, uh, I believe, two thirds of all road miles initially were telecommuting miles, certainly over half. Uh, Telecommuting miles now, I think uh, constitute less than one fifth of all miles driven by cars. People use cars for lots of other things. Okay, then the third pillar of the peak car thesis is that urbanization diminishes the needs for cars. Well, yes, of course, it does because you're driving uh, less distance, more expensive on a car in a city, et cetera, et cetera. Mass transit's more convenient, things closer together. But that, well, that's true. The key question is: Is urbanization continuing at the p- at pace? It's not whether urbanization decreases the distance driven by cars or the need for a car. The key question is: Is the urbanization trend continuing in wealthy countries, especially in the United States? This is fascinating. Uh, I had. Uh, I'll confess, I had no idea of this truth. It's in the census data. You can find it. Uh, The urbanization trend started slowing down and reversing in 2010. 2010 10 years before the great lockdowns. The great lockdowns, of course, uh, reversed dramatically the urbanization trend. In fact, in that one year, uh, well over a third of all Americans left urban areas for ex urban, suburban, and rural uh, zip codes. A lot of them, uh, uh, moved back uh, to city since not everybody. Uh in fact, how many will ultimately move back is speculative. Uh, some surveys suggest half of them might move back, but that would still constitute a massive out-migration. What the lockdowns did was accelerate a trend that was already underway, which was a migration from urban, dense urban zip codes to suburban, exurban, and rural zip codes. And fascinatingly, so once I saw that data, I went hunting and found lots of surveys of this, as you might imagine. Uh, one survey found that 60% of Americans claiming they would prefer to live in the suburbs or rural areas, even if money were no object. Uh, but in that survey, only 40% would choose city life, if again, if money were no object. There was another survey in 2023, earlier this earlier this year, and it found that two thirds of America's, Americans said they would... Uh, consider moving to a rural a rural um, rural house or a, in a suburban or exurban house if uh, <clears throat> excuse me, if their job could accommodate more telecommuting. Uh, in effect, what what we're seeing happen is what the, the uh, sociologist uh, the British sociologist Uri said is that the, the, two, the, the, the effect of the internet of telecommunications, of communications was not to reduce um, reduce travel, In fact, he thought it might even induce travel. And of course, remote work is inducing travel. Look, one of the interesting measures of this effect, and it's also a measure of the effect of the impact of rising housing costs in dense urban areas. One of the direct measures of the change in travel is the so-called super commuter. These are commuters that drive uh, more than 90 minutes to work. The people who have to drive to work have to show up, not, not telecommuters, but people who have no choice but to show up at their job. They're called super commuters. Super commuters are people who drive more than 90 minutes to get to work. Over the last decade, the share of the workforce that is a super, computer, a super commuter workforce has grown three times faster than the overall workforce. In fact, there's now 5 million Americans who commute more than 90 minutes to work. That's really pretty interesting. Uh, the kind of car you need, when you're super commuting is very different than the kind of car you need uh, if you're driving in a dense urban area, self evidently. The last factoid uh, I'll put out for you to think about uh, to calibrate the implications of banning internal combustion engines are consumer preferences. Now, everybody, because there are hundreds of models of cars, by definition, there's lots of kinds of consumer preferences. People who like sports cars aren't like or use them. Aren't the same as people who like pickup trucks or people who like minivans. Or then there's people who own all three. Uh, an increasing number of American households have three vehicles. Very large percentage of American households have three vehicles. Um, most American households now have two vehicles. It's a wealthy country, uh, so this not just for two people, but often for two different kinds of driving or preferences. Anyway, you could broadly categorize consumer preferences through three metrics uh, that are of the, uh, the the size of the vehicle, if you like, the weight of the vehicle and the power of the vehicle. Those are metrics that are independent of the model of the vehicle in terms of whether it's a minivan or a truck, uh, an SUV uh, or sports car, whatever. Uh, so consumers chase preferences based on things that they could that they prefer, not just for aesthetic reasons but for comfort, convenience, Performance, but overall, this is EPA data from 1975, and I think they picked 1975 because that's the that's the year that uh, Congress gave EPA a lot of power. Uh, EPA had only recently been created, uh, for those of you who are history buffs, by President Nixon uh, to uh, regulate uh, fuel consumption, because you know the oil the oil embargo and bans of 1973 convinced politicians that we're running out of oil. That's a whole other rat hole to go down to talk about another time. So marked from 1975, the dawn of the sort of federal uh, heavy hand of federal government uh, engaging in vehicle related energy issues. The average automobile since then has gained 100 horsepower. It weighs a thousand pounds more. And at the same time, it's doubled in fuel efficiency. The last factor, by the way, means that the average carbon dioxide emissions per mile has dropped in half even as, again, the average vehicle has become a thousand pounds heavier and has a hundred more horsepower. pretty impressive technological accomplishment, I'd say. The last very last point uh, to think about in terms of the relevance of all this is uh, economics. Uh, the role of the car, to come back to where I started, um, in quoting uh, in, in, in quoting the, uh, the MIT or MIT his historian on the role of car as a sort of basic structure of our society. It's not just the basic structure of our society. From an economics perspective, it's the number two expense for the average household in America after mortgage or rent. Or put differently, if we don't count an asset like a house, but rather a consumable product like a car, it's the single most expensive uh, product that 98% of consumers will ever purchase. Very, very few people in America ever buy anything more expensive than a car, 2%, literally, hence the, <laughs> the 2% meme. Banning internal combustion engines would effectively constitute a takeover of one of the top economic uh, features of, America, of American economy for most Americans. So banning internal combustion engines is, is consequential, to say the very least, which is what we'll turn to in the next episode of this podcast. And I could hear you uh, from here, right? I could hear it over the internet's ether. <laughs> I, can, I can hear a lot of you thinking that what I'm gonna talk about next is sort of a version of a truth joke that uh, the emissions, if you like, from charging your Tesla, uh, coal grids, right? That's where the emissions come from. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? In many ways, in many more ways than you might imagine, uh, the Charging infrastructure, the nature of how you fuel electric vehicle, presents some fascinating complications and uncertainties that are not only, um, uh, let's say, poorly understood, but it but are entirely ignored in the uh, in sort of the pantheon of discussions about how we're going to cut CO2 emissions. So we'll talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about the emissions associated with building the EVs that policymakers and pundits want to be the only kind of vehicle that you can buy in the future. Uh, That's what the bans are about. Banning internal combustion engines is effectively a ban on building internal combustion combustion engines and a requirement to and a subsidy of building batteries. That's what it distills to. Not just building electric motors instead, but building batteries. We've been building lots of electric motors for well over one and a half centuries in the world and in America. We know how to build electric motors. We know a lot about electric motors. Big batteries, the size of batteries that go into electric cars, batteries that weigh a 1,000 pounds, uh, these are complex electromechanical machines. We have not built such machines at scale ever, uh, frankly, in human history. So this is a whole new area, a fascinating area of engineering and material supply and upstream emissions that we're going to talk about in the future episodes, because that's the epicenter of the issue, that we're taking product that Americans use that's essential to their life, essential to the economic structure of America, that 99% of Americans drive still an internal combustion engine car. It is the number one expense for the majority of households after rent or mortgage. And it's essential to the commerce of the country. And we are gonna shift that to a different class of car that has never been built at scale before. That is the same scale as we build internal combustion engines. It is a profound shift. It's an interesting one. And it has economic, political, and social implications. But what I'm gonna focus on are the operational implications. How convenient is is it to fuel an electric vehicle? And how, how, how much carbon dioxide do you emit when you fuel an electric vehicle in the real world? And how much carbon dioxide has been emitted before the first mile you drive your electric vehicle. In other words, when that vehicle shows up in your driveway or you pick it up from the dealer, it's already emitted a lot of CO2. How much CO2? How much do we know about the CO2 emitted to make the battery for that car? We know an awful lot. We know a lot of, it falls in the category of that line. There are a lot of known unknowns. We know a lot about what's what's happening. We don't know a lot about exactly what's happening. And that's the rub, that's where the key facts turn and where the problem will emerge, both in terms of the cost of EVs in the future and critically the motivation to ban internal combustion engines. That's where we have the profound uncertainties about whether or not and how much CO2 emissions might be reduced by mandating EVs. And indeed, as i I think I can prove to you, there's a very good chance that banning internal combustion engines and mandating EVs implicitly and explicitly will lead to increase in global carbon dioxide emissions. So until the next episode, when we turn to those underlying facts, uh, with, with the usual reminder that you should give us a rating, a like, or a share, wherever and whenever you can, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist.